You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Can you believe it's April? Yeah, April. Uh, you might, your mind went, might have went to tax season. My mind goes to other things. April is, my, um, is a personal big month for me. Um, the end of this month, Gina and I will be married 32 years. 32 years, that's 11, well, thank you. That's 11,680 days. All right, I was, I was living in Texas at the time and um, was flying back to Atlanta for the wedding. Um, the connecting flight into DFW was late. And so I literally, this is gonna tell the age of some of y'all, I, I was the OJ Simpson in the Hertz commercials. Anybody? Not many, not many. Okay, all right, I see a few hands. All right, so literally I run through. Now, if you've been, anybody been, if you've been to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, it is a significant airport in terms of size. Fortunately, I didn't have to change terminals, but my gate was, I landed on one end of the horseshoe and I had to go to the other end of the horseshoe of that gate to get it. So I literally was running. They don't do this anymore, but like the, the gate agent opened the door to let me down the jetway. It had already closed. And then... I'm stomping down the jetway and the the flight attendant heard me coming through the jetway and reopens the door. Literally, it was almost closed. Reopens the door to let me on the plane. Um, And so it begins my kind of days of showing up. So April's big show up days uh, for me because this Sunday in 2007 was Gateway's first public service. All right, so this Sunday marks 16 years of showing up. Um, Hannah, or, um, Hannah, Holly and Jeremy Lewis was one of our families that helped launch the church. They were here in the first service, Harry and Georgetta. Here in this service, Gina, Annie, and I um, are left of these 15 families that planted Gateway Church 16 years ago. And so we've still been showing up week after week after week for 832 consecutive Sundays. Um, interestingly enough, Gene and I, half of our married life has been spent pastoring this church. And over two-thirds of our daughter's life is this church, the only church that basically she knows. Um, I know that most couples don't celebrate how many days they've been married, and most pastors don't celebrate how many Sundays and weeks that the church has gone on. Um, but what, to me, what they represent is a concentrated, concerted effort to show up. Gene and my marriage, we have to work on our marriage just like every other couple has to work on their marriage. And it works because each of those days we decided we were going to show up. And our church, as a pastoral couple, Gene and I, we don't, we don't have everything there is to have. Um, this church probably won't check every box everybody looks for for a church. What I do know though, is that we are a pastoral couple a pastoral leadership team, and a church of people who made the decision to show up. And, you know, Christian said that he has talked to people and said that it's a family. Um, Well, that's one of the best things about a family, isn't it? It actually is the mark of a family. And it doesn't matter what the situation is. You show up. 
And I want us to be a place full of people who show up. Now, what does it take then to become a people who show up? I think one way to attack that is to determine what works against showing up, okay? What works against showing up? Well, one, a lack of conviction. A lack of conviction comes up when you don't show up. It's the sentiment that why do I need to show up? I think there's feelings of inadequacy and insecurities work against showing up. This would manifest itself in, well, what difference does it make if I show up? What difference can I make if I show up? And then there's distractions and competing interests. This looks like, well, what will I have to give up to show up? These three things and others work against a people who show up. So people who show up are ones that have a calling that fuels their conviction. It becomes more their identity. It's I have to show up. That's who I am. It's one whose faith in God's strength supersedes their own personal weaknesses. So it's a commitment that God will use me when I show up. And then it's a commitment to the calling that overshadows the opportunities in the present. There's always going to be other reasons why we, not to show up. There always will be other things to do, excuses to make, reasons to cite. But the people who show up have a commitment and a calling that overshadows those present opportunities. Some of you might remember, most of you would not, just based on it was 30 years ago, there was a movement that was recognized by a bracelet that had these four initials, WWJD, WWJD. So it was for, it was, the idea was birthed from a, a woman or student pastor and I believe it was Wisconsin. And she wanted to come up with something that would help her students that when they encountered situations that they wouldn't know what to do or found themselves in situations where they didn't know what to do, that they would ask themselves the question facilitated by those four letters, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And then, of course, it gets pummeled in the ground over the decades um, as kind of a frivolous thing. I actually, see, I've seen someone in our congregation still have a bracelet or have a bracelet that says WWJD. Um, I don't know, and there's no way to be able to answer what would Jesus do from the pulpit in every situation and circumstance that there is. But I do have one answer. What would Jesus do in that circumstance is that he would show up. That he would show up, right? And it kind of covers a lot of things there. In our amazing Jesus study in Mark today, we come to Mark chapter 11. I told you that two-thirds of Mark's gospel is dedicated to the, the arrest, the rest, crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. Two-thirds of his gospel. And this morning, our text brings us to a Jesus show up moment. Here's Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. And I know we generally just read over texts sometimes and we missed we missed the context. I, I've never, it's, I don't want to chase this rabbit, but I've just always found this fascinating that Jesus says, go into this town, go take something that's not yours. And when they ask you about it, just tell them I need it and they'll let it go. I, who goes on that errand? You know, 
You know, and you take the colt and someone says, where are you going with it? Uh, 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 Jesus needed it. Okay, just bring it back. Okay, irrelevant. It's just always shocked me. Verse four, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing and tying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of, the, of, his father, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. All the gospels record this story. Luke 19 gives us a little bit more shadow into it. Verse 39 of Luke 19 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Um, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The Pharisees were trying to have Jesus correct his followers because of the commotion that this was causing. They were afraid that Rome would get, uh, uh, would get kind of um, irate, torn up about this in the sense that they would want to squelch this uprising. Well, Jesus, knowing that the people did not know fully what was happening, I think he gave them a better alternative. If they were trying to keep Rome from being upset, we had two choices. We had a group of people that didn't fully know what was going on, hailed Jesus as king, or if they wouldn't have recognized who he was, creation would have recognized who he was. And so basically, I think he said, well, what, what do you think would be more convenient for you? These people shouting out to who I am or the mountain around us shouting out? Which is going to cause more of a reaction. Because see, this, this day, we recognize this day as Palm Sunday. Um, 2,000 years ago, they would have recognized this day as Preparation Day. It was Preparation Day. It wouldn't have had the name Palm Sunday. This was the day in history where Israel looked back to a deliverance from Egypt. A particular um, uh, Time that I'll get to here in a second, but this was a day in which the, the Israel was commanded to take a one-year-old lamb from their flock, perfect male one-year-old lamb from the flock, or from or to purchase, and to set it aside for the coming Passover celebration that would be on the following Thursday. All right, so Jesus enters into the city on the historic day that a lamb would be set aside in order for a Passover celebration. So what's Passover? Well, Passover wasn't even called, wouldn't even been Passover until this thing happened. So when, when Israel was in bondage in Egypt, 430 years later, God calls up Moses and then challenges Pharaoh, very interesting enough, to let the people go to worship. Okay? And so, Pharaoh, why should I let 430 years of labor leave? God keeps hardening his heart, keeps sending plagues upon Egypt to, to demonstrate the dominance of God. And it comes down to the moment of the last plague where he was going to send a death angel to go throughout the area and would take, would, would take the firstborn male from every family. 
And this was what God spoke to Moses to take to Pharaoh. And then he speaks to Moses, but take to my people this, have them separate out a one-year perfect lamb. Have them kill this lamb and take the blood of the lamb and, and, and literally, I, you, you could say, paint their doorposts with that blood. And what's going to happen is then that blood will be a covering for your family. That blood will distinguish you between being a Hebrew and God's people and Egypt slave owners here. All right? But then you're to take this lamb and you're to roast it and you're cook it and you're supposed, you should you're to eat all of it and eat it in haste. Like, like, like this is kind of a last meal kind of thing. Something's big's going to happen. It even says to take the cloak, your cloak, and place it inside your belt as you eat it. Why? Well, the garbs were long. This would, this would, uh, would encumber you as you would travel. So, so the, the indication here is you're going to eat this. This is going to be kind of your last meal here for a while. And then eat it in haste. Be ready to run because something's going to happen. All right? So this... This is the Passover. What I, lo I love about when you read the Exodus story, that it comes down to the end before they're released. And the scripture literally says, um, and it was 430 years to the day, to the day that they were released. And, and years ago, I gave this statement for that, that nothing is over until God says it's over. But when God says it's over, it's over. He's that specific. And so this begins, this begins this journey of Israel and then where, where they celebrate Passover every year as a remembrance of what God did for them and their people and what God was going to do for them and his people. All right? So now on this occasion, you can imagine that it gets lost, right? Some of the doesn't it, anytime you do anything continually in a pattern, kind of get, you lose the weight of it a little bit, right? And so it kind of turns into something maybe it's not. And on this particular day, they're not thinking about setting apart a lamb and Jesus coming into the city. This is not a part of their thinking, but I'll tell you what was a part of their thinking. The Jewish people were tired of being ruled by a group of people who didn't share their historic or their ethnic roots. They, had, they, they were tired of that. Once they were uh, uh, slaves in a foreign country, now they basically were captives in their own country. A land that had been promised to them, they now were sitting in, and yet they were still being dominated by opposing force. All right, they were, they were tired. They were tired of that. The Jewish people were tired of being ruled by a group of people who dismissed, disregarded, and even had a level of disdain for their religious values. Rome was a culture of high ideas, Philosophy, architecture, political structures, high ideas, low morals. High ideas, low morals. And um, the Jews were tired of being ruled by them. Rome considered anyone who didn't speak their language barbarians. That, that, was, that was what was the label if you didn't speak Greek. You were a barbarian, right? So you were uneducated, you were below us. The Jewish people were tired of being ruled by a group of people who rejected their God, the one and only living God. Rome was a secular, pagan, religiously pluralistic culture. 
the Romans flat out did not understand how you worship one God. Like, what, aren't you making the other gods mad? Why would you single out one God? So the Shema, which they would have prayed multiple times a day, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, literally reads, there is only one true God, Jehovah, and we worship him alone. Any similarities to where we find ourselves today? Did you pick up on any of those nuances? And we sit here on Palm Sunday, preparation day. A day that days matter to God. Timing has always mattered to God. God's timing is not haphazard. And yet we sit in the middle of time and, and we, we, we flounder a little bit in it. We don't understand things about our time. We don't understand why we walk through certain things. We don't understand and, and we can be overwhelmed because we don't know when they'll ever end. And yet Passover was given as a remembrance that he stays true to his word. And what he has done, he will do. And we sit here in our community and Passover on preparation day. And I just want you to know it matters. Today matters. It's not just a day in a liturgical calendar. It's not just a day in which you decided to come to church. There is significance there's significance about these kind of days. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus recorded in John chapter one, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an introduction. And then 33 years later, he enters a city and no one connects the dots that he's the Lamb of God. No, no connection. He is he is what they want to be, they, what, what they want him to be as a deliverer, what they want him to be as a king, but no connection that he is the Lamb of God. They're tired of being ruled. They're tired of things not going their way. They want something different. So when Jesus enters that city that day, he was met with misunderstanding from every everyday Jew. I think that it would read this way, that we want you the way we want you. We want you to come into the city the way we want you to come into the city. They had a complete misunderstanding about the Lamb of God. They wanted a king again. He entered the city and he was met with rejection by the religious Jews. We don't want to be ruled by the likes of you. We don't want your ways. We don't want yours. We want to be self-ruled. He enters into the the indifference of the Romans. We don't care about you. You're insignificant. You're just another Jew. But what's the beauty of Jesus in this moment is that he showed up. Misunderstanding, rejection, indifference, irrelevant. He shows up anyway. I wonder if you've ever said this. I don't wanna be where I'm not wanted. I'm not going to help you if you aren't going to help yourself. I'm tired of caring more about you than you caring for me. I'm sure those sentiments have circled, circled your heart at one time or another. And you made a decision based on how you felt in those moments. And yet Jesus had a complete understanding of his misunderstanding. He had a complete understanding of his rejection. He had a complete understanding of his indifference. And he showed up 
anyway. So how, how can a man, how can he show up under such circumstances? I have at least three different hypotheses here. One is that his identity was connected to his purpose. His identity and his purpose were fixed by God, not by people. People's understanding of who he was, people's acceptance of who they thought he was, it was a thing, it just wasn't his thing. Biblical prophecy isn't a prediction of what might come. Biblical prophecy is a proclamation of what is coming. And so in Isaiah chapter 53, this is the proclamation of who was coming. So, so what I'm saying, Jesus knew his identity here, all right? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, Isaiah reads. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to, tr to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and, aff and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Why? Because he showed up. Verse six says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. Each of us have our own misunderstandings, our own rejection, our own difference to who he was and who he is. And the Lord laid all of those, all of our iniquity, he'd laid them on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. You know, there was no need to defend himself. He was the savior. So he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he's punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life until death and was numbered with the transgression, transgressors. So he, he identified with us and our sin for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's a whole chapter in the book of Isaiah. It tells us his identity. It was his identity. His purpose and identity was determined by God, not by what people thought of him. And his, face, his faith was fixed in his father's power, and it wasn't fixed and fixated on his human weakness. Now, it is, it is the thing about Jesus that is the most difficult to comprehend. In the day, they had no trouble believing that he was a man. They had trouble believing he was God. Today, we can believe that he was God, and we have a very difficult understanding of what it meant for him to be a man. Now, we know what, we know what it means to be a man or a woman, 
And yet somehow we take those things out and not believe that he was a man. Meaning, so did he struggle with human weakness? Well, pastor, I don't know if we read much about that. Here's one thing we do read often. And he went away to be alone with his father. Why? Why would he need to spend, if he's God, why would he need to spend time alone with his father, God? I, I propose that this was hard. <laughs> From his baptism on, I believe he knows the full weight of what he's walking into. And although he embraces it fully, it was hard. And the way through another day was going to be another night spent with his father. And he had, there was, there was a fight of his, of his human weakness, and yet it doesn't deter his movement. Because there was a faith in the power of his father and the power of his father's plan, and he was going to walk that out as just a, before he's even a little baby, the angel gives a description to Mary of what her son was going to be. We read that in Luke 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus and he'll be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end and you want to go, yeah! And yet you're going to change his diaper and you're going to feed him at night. And he's going to have trouble making friends. He's going to be rejected, turned on. You see, when you just, when you just live in the big moments, then we end up reducing our life. When our life is not in big moments, we wonder where he is. And he's in the big moments. He shows up in the big moments, and yet he shows up all the time. He's, he's birthed with this proclamation, but he still had to walk out every single day. And how do you do that? How do you become a person who shows up? You're, you're, you're connected, you're fixed on the power of the spirit inside of you and not the weaknesses that always represent who you are. The third for me was he fixed his eyes on the prize and not the path. He fixed his eyes on the prize. What prize? Well, he had two opportunities, two opportunities to choose a different path. The first would be in his temptations. So you read the gospels, he gets baptized, he comes out of the water, the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. These aren't the three suggestions of Satan. They're, they're labeled temptations for a reason. What were the temptations? I know your end game. You want to be king over this world. I can get you there. And I can get you there faster and less pain than your father can. So if you just do these things, it's all yours. That was an opportunity. But he was fixed, not on the path, on this plan laid out in front of him. And then we, we, we see him wrestling in the garden. And this is going to be our Good Friday service, so I can't get too deep here. 
But he wrestles in the garden and he asks if there's another way. His question is, I, I, know, I know what this is gonna cost me. And if there is another path, let's take it. If there's not, I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna show up. What's this prize that he had? Well, in, in mind, what was he fixed on? Here's Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The, the, the writer of Hebrews is connecting the dots between Christ showing up and us showing up. He said, with fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and here's why we can fix our eyes on Jesus and not our path, is the reason why he fixed what he fixed his eyes on and not the path. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, which means he didn't say, oh, I don't want... Scorning the shame is a, is a kind of weird kind of phrase. Think of it this way. He understood and recognized the shame that was going to be associated with his death on the cross. And it didn't matter. It's a full embracing of everyone is cur accursed by God who dies on a tree. They, they, they knew, he knew the reputation of this, the shame that this would brought, the criminals that would be hung up and left. Scorned it. This is not stopping me. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Only kings that were done in battle sat down. He sat down. He said, consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people like you and me. I wrestle through hard things sit in the middle of situations that are difficult. And he's saying, hey, I know you're afraid. Hey, I know you're weak. I know this is intimidating. I know it'd be easier not to show up than to show up. I know that. Hey, 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 hey. Let's consider Christ. Let's consider how he showed up and how he endured and how he kept walking and how he won. So these things around you that trip you up, the things that so easily entangle you, hey, 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 put, put those away. Put those away. Don't trip over those. Fix your eyes on him. Look at him. See what he did. Experience what he did. Sit in what he did. Sit in what he overcame. Because you can sit in that too. Everything feels so much different when we can put it into context. The, the, the prize that he fixed his eyes on was I'm going to do the will of the Father. And I'm going to reconcile creation to him and whatever path that took he was going to take it misunderstandings misgivings and differences didn't matter so what do we do with this Satan still tries to do his same stuff 
He still wants people to misunderstand God. He will sow whatever seeds he can get for people to misunderstand God. One of the misunderstandings about God is that he is here to make life easy for us. That he will take away all the things that make life hard. How do I know that's a misunderstanding? Because when tragedies happen, like it happened in the covenant school, this is the first thing people bring up. Well, if there was a God, why didn't he do? Right? So, so, so think a little layered with me, okay? What is that really saying? What that really saying is, if there is a God, God is who I would make him to be. And if I were to make God, I would make God make everything easy for everybody. So when things are not easy and even tragic, then that must mean there's no God. Why? Because the, the misunderstanding of God is, well, he just makes life easy, which has never been his promise throughout any of scripture. The promise is quite actually the opposite in the sense that you will have heart. Sin has caused heart. If our country would embrace the fact that evil exists, maybe we can take a spiritual approach at something. But when you ignore it, then you ignore the solution or at least you, you ignore the presence that walks us through in this recognition of where this stuff comes from. God is not here. We had the easy choice like at creation. We chose a different path as much as, you, as much as I would like to believe I'm not Adam. I got plenty of my own list. You know what I'm saying? So now what? Did God pack up his ball and go home? Or did he show up? He showed up. Because not only was, is Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's also the lamb that was slain from the foundation of time. It, 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 you can't even wrap our, 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 our two-dimensional kind of mind around God. He plays three-dimensional chess. The rest of us play checkers. That before there was sin, he had made provision for that choice. I'll take that, God. But Satan still wants us to misunderstand who he is. He wants us to have a misgiving, a misgiving of who he is. He wants, he wants to convince people that Jesus is here to condemn people. He's a condemning God. Well, if, if he is God, then he's not a God I would want because all I can see is he's a condemning God. Here's the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the God's one and only son. This is a very poignant passage here, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. So Jesus does not condemn people in darkness. In fact, he comes to all of us in our darkness. Here's the verdict. People choose to remain in darkness. And in that choice, they condemn themselves. And that's, you know, in our, our postmodern Western language, that sounds harsh. If you strip this thing down, it's saying, 
I'm here to give you something. But if you don't take it, how is that on me? That strips all of the other stuff away, doesn't it? You add a gas, I give you 50 bucks. You don't want the 50 bucks for gas and you complain that your car's empty. But my intent in coming wasn't to sit there and make fun of you that you ran out of gas. How'd you run out of gas, stupid? Don't you know that light and that gauge on your dash? It tells you when you need gas. You ought to be smart enough to figure out if you need gas. But heck, here, that, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Misunderstood, misgiving about who he is. And the one that's very difficult to really respond to to me is those who dismiss Christ as it just doesn't matter today. This, this is just not his context. He doesn't fit today. Pastor, how, how could you convince me that I even need this guy? I don't, even, I don't even understand why you would think I would need him. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I've, I've, I've tried that conversation with people. It doesn't, doesn't seem to move the needle very much. But I do have this to offer. Also in this scene of scripture, Luke records this, that as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, even if you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you in and hem you in on every side. He enters the city. I can only imagine the conflict of emotions that he's having. Like I'm at the finish line. Like I've made it to this point, right? So many times he even avoided going to the city because he knew what people were gonna do, right? And so here's this time and he knows it's the time. It's time to show up. He shows up. There's excitement, I would think. It had to be at some level. This is about to end. This is about to be the end of this journey. I'm ready to be back united with my father in completion. And he goes into the city and gets met with a reception that he knows, God, they still don't get it. He's going to be spend a few quiet days with his disciples and then he's going to be arrested and killed and he knows there's, there's, not, there's no avoiding this and yet this is where I'm going and the very people that are going to kill him, the very people that are going to stand, step out of the way for his death, he sees those people in this city and he cries and it struck me in the first service, I didn't write this down but I don't think it could have been a tear that just escaped a little of his eye. Come on, team, I know you're, you're ready, come on. I, I, don't, I don't think it was a tear that some, something just squeaked out the corner of his eye and kind of touched his beard, because how would that have been noticed? Who would have noticed that he got glassy-eyed? I mean, was this an ugly cry? This, this guttural, physical and he wept. He cries over that. That's, that's the only thing that, that Charlie can say when you say, I don't know what difference does it make. And you're looking to somehow change outcomes. How, how if I would receive him, outcomes get changed. 
instead of seeing him as the one that loves us enough that he would die. That's why he matters. So, so, what, do, so what do we do? What do we do with this? That's the number one question I ask every week when I write a sermon. What are we going to do with this? I don't know where it finds you, where it fits with you today, but, but I, want, I want you to hear that not only did Jesus show up for you, he, he continues to show up for you. And I know that things around you can be loud and hard. I know when you get punched in the nose, it bleeds. I know when you get punched in the gut, you can't catch your breath. I, I, I know these feelings, and yet Jesus shows up. I know what it's like to, to misunderstand, to kind of cast him in a, a light that's really not his light. And yet, he, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the questions that you haven't even asked yet. And he's still there to hear them. So if you find yourself processing through whether or not Christ is real, or you, you, you know he's real and you find yourself in a circumstance today, you need him to show up. That's how we're going to respond today. You're going to you're going to need to borrow some faith from someone today to stand with you and ask God to show up again for you. But there's another side of this coin to how do we become a people who show up? We've got to go through the same process. We've got to think through that we do matter because our identity is in Christ. It's, it's, not what, it's not what we bring to the table into a solution. It's who we bring to the table. I know that sounds a little, that sounds a little preacher-ish. But the, but the point is that when, when we show up as members of the body of Christ, when you show up on behalf of someone, some circumstance, there's power in that. You have to come, overcome your own feelings of inadequacy. You have to overcome, there's other opportunities, other things you could be doing. You got to overcome all those kind of things. But yeah, if we understand that this is why we've been put here, if we understand this as purposeful, then these other things just kind of fade away because we understand we see that, oh, so that's what today is supposed to be about. That's what this circumstance is about. Oh, I'm, this is where I, this is what I step into. You, you, you'll just be amazed. I'm, I'm sure if I asked, the hands could go up all over this place when situations like that come and you kind of recognize, wait, this is my place right now. You step into it. How all your, your, your questions and what's going to happen, all that kind of stuff just goes, kind of goes to mute. It goes, and then you hear and see what God has for you in that moment. Here's, here's a passage. I forgot to read this in the first service. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And the way I read this is from now on, we don't overlook anybody. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Do not buy the lie that you're the same person you were before Christ. The old is gone. The new is here. 
listen, and we just get newer all the time, okay? So it's not that we're perfect, but we're new and we get more new and more new and more new. The truth, the real truth here is the old is gone. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What was what he fixed his eyes on? That he was going to reconcile the world to his father. That's what he fixed his eyes on. This is my role. My role is to do the will of the father and recon reconcile creation to him. And then he's telling us here in this writer, Paul, telling us we've been given, when we are new in Christ, we've been given this same ministry. So this becomes our call. Everything else should fade or facilitate this call. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So when I show up, I show up with the message of reconciliation. That's the power in which we show up with. Not my message. Not my wisdom. Not my perspective. But this message of rec reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God would reckon. God, we're making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who, made, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in our response time today, if you, if you want to be reconciled to God, if you want or need God to show up for you in a circumstance, I want, I want this side over here to be the, the altar side you come to. And so if you have faith and want to share some faith with a brother and sister in Christ, that, that you know that the, those who would come up to this altar on this side are, are asking for God to show up in their life. Whether or not for the first time in salvation or for a circumstance. Over here, you recognize that God is calling you to show up in someone's life and you have been hesitant for all the same reasons we've talked about today. But you know that there is this moment of time and God is calling you to show up in someone's life and you haven't known quite what to do with that. We wanna link our faith with you today on this side and pray. Okay. All right, stand with me. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to invite you to move. Communion's always available to my left and to my right. So, Father, in this moment, Lord, first we say thank you that you showed up. Even though we did not have a heart to receive you, you came anyway. Lord, and I believe today in the power of prayer, not as an activity but as a connecting point to you. And we wanna pray and stand with brothers and sisters in Christ. So Lord, do what only you can do in this moment. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today. 